So in Mark chapter 2, you understand and you know it opens up with Jesus in this home and the friends who tear back the roof and lower down this paralytic guy. And he is, here is this par, paralytic who's sitting before Jesus and he's wondering what's going to happen. The four friends who have lowered him down are wondering what's going to happen. And here's the religious elite. They're over here and they're wondering what's going to happen. But Jesus is not wondering what's going to happen. He knows. And he looks at him and says, because of the faith of those guys, your sins are forgiven. Yeah. Now, the funny thing is, is he addresses this, and I don't want to dig too deep in this because it's been talked about. But Jesus jumps into this, your sins are forgiven. And that elicits a response out of the people in the room. In fact, there is a response. And the response is, who is this that he can forgive sins? And there's this question that Mark poses to us through the Pharisees. And that question is a question I think we all must wrestle with. Who is this that can forgive our sins? Who is this that can solve the deepest longing in our hearts? Who is it that can rescue us? Because I think we can ask that in two different ways. We can ask that as an accusatory, who are you to do this? Or we can ask that and go, who are you that you can do this? That you would deliver me, that you would speak over me the forgiveness of sin. And so Mark puts this question in front of us. And then through this next series of stories, I think he unpacks a little deeper to help us understand the, the answer to this question. And so as you read on in Mark, we get to the next story. And the next story is Jesus is out again. He's doing ministry, and he's walking along the sea. And he's out at the sea because there are so many people, there's no place in town that they can meet. And so he's walking along the sea, and he's, his people are gathered, and he comes up to a man, Matthew, we also know as Levi. And it's a simple statement that Jesus gives Matthew, and he says, follow me. And so in this, we don't know what else transpires. All we know is Jesus looks at him and says, follows me. And then the next it goes to, and Jesus was in the house with Matthew and other sinners. And then the Pharisees again. When they see this, they respond. Who is this? Why is he eating with them? Why would they be eating? Why would Jesus, who claims to be this son of God, this the, the one who's righteous, the one who's good. Why would he be in the company of sinners? And this is proposed and thrown out. You see, the people of God had turned the work of God into some kind of religion for winners. Think about that. The people of God had turned the work of God into a religion for winners. And there was no room for the weak. But yet Jesus responds to them, he says, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so we see in this text that the definition of sinner is not given by Jesus, but it's given by the Pharisees. It's given by the people. And so if by your argument that these are sinners, then wouldn't it denote that they're the most needy? But yet, the one who are pushed far away. I mean, because Matthew wasn't a heathen. 
He was a sinner. Matthew wasn't some Samaritan. He wasn't a Gentile. Matthew was a Jew. He was an Israelite. He was in the family. And so here, the Pharisees are looking on the brother and casting him away. And Jesus goes, no, 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 this is the brother. You see, Jesus seeks to reveal our weakness so that we may turn to his strength. And in this story, see this with me. Because here's Jesus walking along the sea, and he looks at Matthew and he says, you have the wrong master, come follow me. Because see, Matthew had been a master of Rome. Rome was his master. Rome was the one who told him what to do. Rome was the one who separated him from the family. Rome was the one who caused him to be an outcast from his people. But Jesus shows up and says, you're following the wrong master, come follow me. You see, the closeness of Jesus will reveal in us the misery of our condition. And it will expose the darkness of our hearts in order that we may see that the only hope that we have, the only solution, rests in the atoning blood of Jesus. The closest of Jesus will do that. But in calling Matthew a sinner and eating with the sinners, Jesus reveals the sin in the hearts of others. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were not considered sinners. These were among the righteous. But here when Jesus comes along, when the Gospels are written, they're painted as the sinner. Catch that. When Jesus, when the closeness of Jesus comes, he reveals the darkness. He reveals that we are all sinners. And by opposing Jesus' call to the sinners... They make themselves into the very ones that Jesus came to redeem. 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16, Paul writes this to Timothy, and he says, The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul is writing, that is a true statement. That is a good statement. I know it's kind of tradition, what we hear a lot among church, but that's true. And then he finishes that with, of who I am the foremost. Now this was written by a man who had studied the law under the best teachers. He had executed the law unto the best of his abilities. And he had served God or his theological construct of God to the best of his ability. But when he encountered the nearness of Jesus, something changed. And he had seen that all of that had piled up to nothing, to his righteousness. In fact, all of that had condemned him more. And so here Paul writes, he says, I am the foremost in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You see, Jesus seeks to reveal our weakness so that we may turn to his strength. Who can save? Who has the power to save? The one who can bring the revelation of our need for saving. 
Who is this that can cause our hearts to come alive? The one who created. And so Mark is going to set up here. He's going to show us the authority of Christ so that we might believe. But not only that we might believe, that we might be transformed. And I know some of you are sitting here going, well, I've been saved a long time. What is in this for me? Okay, I get it. Yeah, yeah, Jesus came to save sinners. But I've been saved for a while. But if we're not careful, we just might miss that the foundational element of our faith is still the rock that gets us through our day to day. Because we will always be searching for another path, another way. Because it's not too easy to become the Pharisee who sits back and begins to judge others, begins to equate our revelation to somebody else's revelation, our understanding to somebody else's. But if we could keep in mind, if we could keep in heart of who we are, if we can see the depth of which he has pulled us from, then we can see the height of which he is taking us. But we can't see the one without the other. So Jesus reveals our weakness. And you may have been saved for a long time, but you still have weakness that is being revealed. And you still have ways in which Christ is making himself known to you. And we can't ever lose that. You know, sometimes it's hard to get rid of stuff, though, isn't it? Like when you've been in, something's been ingrained in you and entrenched in you, and it's become part of you over a long time, it's hard to get rid of. Now, if you know me, and you've talked to me for a little bit, you're going to hear these words come out of my mouth, and they offend a lot of people. I don't know why, but they do. But somehow, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, is some of the most offensive language in the world. I mean, I've been like, yes, sir, before, and I've heard response. Well, the only sir I know is my dad. I'm like, well, okay. I'm glad you know him. Or say it to a lady, and then all of a sudden, you could, should have just told her she was old and ugly. And I'm like, no, I, I, just, I said, yes, ma'am. And then I always, you know, well, you don't have to call me ma'am. And I go, yes, ma'am. <laughs> that was beat into me. <laughs> it's not coming out. <laughs> And here, the Pharisees, you know, we want to give them a hard time. But this was ingrained into them. Worship, how they met with God, how they pursued God was ingrained into them. And aren't you glad that Jesus has the grace and the mercy to deal gently with us, to bring us to his revelation? Aren't you glad that he can take someone of the deepest, hardest Whatever tradition or sin or commit thing you've been locked into, that he can bring you from that. Because Paul is proof. And so we get the first story of Jesus sitting with sinners. And then the second story in which Mark takes us to is he's questioned, it's called that Jesus is questioned on fasting. And I don't like that title. It's in there, and he is questioned about fasting, but I don't think that's where the text is trying to get us to go, is to a discourse about fasting. Because if so, I think Jesus would have quoted Malachi. And if you understand and read through Malachi, you, God says, oh, you want to fast? Well, this is what a fast looks like to me. 
And so here is the, the people, they come up to the Jesus and they go, well, the Pharisees, they fast twice a week. And John's disciples, they fast, uh, but your disciples don't fast. Why is that? And I love the way Jesus responds, don't you? Like he kind of gets to the point, but he does it in a loving, caring way that hopefully opens and unpacks something deeper for us. And so he goes, well, when you're with the bridegroom, do you fast or do you feast? And it's obvious the response is you feast, right? I mean, that's the only reason I go to weddings anymore, right? <laughs> like, I hope it's going to be good food. And then you've been to the wedding before and you're like, oh, man. <laughs> you got to have something more than just a cake, right? But when we think of a wedding, and you have to think in the culture of this context, in this time, when they did a wedding, it wasn't just an evening. It wasn't three hours long. You were lucky if it wasn't three weeks long. And they would throw these big parties, and they would throw these parades, and they would make a big festival, and you would come over, and they would lavish a party in front of you. And for a week and on, they would celebrate and dance, and they would sing, and they would laugh, and they would tell stories. And their families would get to know each other, and they would get intertwined. And so Jesus' response was not, can a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. You see, Jesus seeks to bring us into his family. And by bringing us in his family, it produces faith in you and that through his power, your works will please the Father. You see, the religious culture of the day had made religion into this, if you act the right way and if you say the right things, then you can belong. And so the people, well, why aren't you fasting? Why aren't your disciples acting right? They're not acting like the other religious leaders that we know? Why are you acting different? And Jesus immediately takes them to this bridegroom language because the Israelites would have understood that throughout the whole Old Testament, God continually paints this relationship between the children of Israel and God the Father. That he is the bridegroom, that he is their husband, and that they are his bride, and that they have been unfaithful but yet he continues to pursue them. And they would have seen their relationship with God in this terms of a wedding. And so he uses this language to bring them back to this understanding of this connective bond, this family relationship. Because in religion, what you do is religion says you need to act this way. And when you act this way, then you need to think this way. And once you've thought this way, then you can belong. But here Jesus comes and he says, you belong to me. And I will put my faith in your heart, will make you believe and come alive. And in that, then you will respond in the proper action. See, they had gotten it backwards. They said, behave, believe, and belong. But Jesus says, belong, believe, and then behave. 
Jesus says, you belong to me, therefore I will give you the revelation of me, and I will trade your heart for, of stone for a heart of flesh, one that is animated by my power. You see, Jesus is calling us to belong. Marriage is not a relationship of knowledge, but a relationship of experience. You know, when you're dating, you get a lot of knowledge of a person. But when you get married, boy, you really get to know somebody, don't you? My poor wife. <laughs> but you really get to know someone. You know, I didn't realize how bad our eyesight was when we dated, but when we got married, we um, were off on our honeymoon, and we were out snorkeling. And I didn't, uh, at that time, she had lost one of her contacts. And so I'm more the adventurous one, so I signed us up for this uh, snorkel cruise. We go out, way out, with this remote place, and um, there's this big coral reef, and at the edge of it, it just drops off into this utter abyss. It's just blue, and it's a vertical drop-off. And so I'm like, let's swim out over the edge. And she's like, no. I'm like, yeah, come on, it'll be fun. She's like, no. And so we're out swimming, and there's this monk seal that swings by. I don't know if you've ever seen those. And all of a sudden, the terror that gripped my wife just baffled me. I didn't get it. But then again, I didn't realize that all she saw was a blur, a blob coming at her. <laughs> and, you know, the first thing instills is fear, right? There's a shark, ah! But I didn't know how bad my wife's vision was until that experience. You see, the thing is, is marriage is not a relationship of knowledge, but it's one of experience and the experience of belonging. The life of a Christian involves much more than a personal knowledge of Christ or even good feelings toward Christ. We are to enter into the joys of a spiritual marriage. The bearing of his name, the sharing of his wealth, the walking in his power, enjoying his love and his, perfect, his protection. You see, this isn't about fasting or this isn't about a funeral. This isn't about you getting to deny yourself. This isn't about you losing something. This isn't about you tearing away and putting on a somber face and being upset and being hangry and all these things. No, Jesus is saying, no, I've called you to belong so that you may experience the power and the blessing of being in a relationship. For you take on my name. And then what it comes with that is the power and the authority of Jesus now comes along with us. But so many times we fail to walk in that, don't we? You see, anyone who wants to know Christ must give time to him and count no time wasted which is spent in the cultivation of his acquaintance. And for you that have been married a while, you, you could probably look back and you see your early years and you couldn't wait to get with that person, could you? And then as you get older, you kind of lose that sense, don't you? I mean, you still want to be with him, but... It's just not the same because you've kind of become more familiar. But the time you spend doesn't make you love each other less. In fact, it makes it grow deeper. And it's not based on feelings or emotions anymore. It's not based on newness. It's based on commonality. It's based on connectivity. 
But yet we often want to run to some man who claims to have the power of Jesus. We often want to run to a revival service where they claim to have the presence of God. But in belonging with Jesus, we have everything he has. In belonging to Jesus, we have everything he has. You know, um, last Sunday when Pastor John was preaching on worship, I couldn't help but think in the midst of that, I always want to be someone who knows how to interpret a moment. I don't know, maybe you do. Like When God shows up, you want to kind of be able to interpret that, right? When you're talking with other people and, and God seems to be evident in that conversation, you want to know how to interpret that. And oftentimes that's what I want to be. I want to be good at understanding, interpreting what God is doing. But then as I'm listening processing this story of this woman who comes before Jesus, you know, it made me think, oftentimes we wait for a moment with God, but yet she made the moment with him. So many times we, we wait for God, okay, God, here I am, do it. We're waiting. Isn't that often how we approach? Come on, if we're honest. I mean, I know sometimes I do. But yet here's a story of a woman who didn't wait for a moment. I mean, those moments happen. You got Zacchaeus sitting up in a tree. You got Matthew out collecting taxes. You got the disciples who were fishing. But yet this woman, she just shows up and she shows out. Because she didn't need to wait for a moment. She knew who her lover was. And Jesus responds, I am the bridegroom. Jesus is not suggesting that the law should be broken. He is expressing that these cannot be comp completed without him. That his power will be the only strength that's possible for us to live righteous. But we often get them out of order, don't we? We often make them about if we behave the right way, if we believe the right things, then we belong. But Jesus is saying, you belong, therefore I will give you a heart to believe, and therefore you will have the power to walk out a life of righteousness. Jesus seeks to bring into his family, to produce faith in you, that through his power your works will please the Father. And again, Mark takes us to another story in 21 here, and the next story we see is that they've already questioned about fasting. We've already called Levi. And then the disciples are walking through the field and they pick grain and they begin to eat it. And here's the Pharisees. It's almost like you can see them just like hanging out in the back and just peeking, waiting for them to mess up. We've all experienced the spiritual police at the church, right? We can just go ahead and call it that. You know, that person who's just waiting for you to mess up to go, ah, I told you. Right? Come on, we've met them. <laughs> I grew up with a lot of them. We had one, she would sit in the, never mind. So she would sit in the choir and the music was so loud, she just stood up there like this the whole time. I'm like, everybody sees you, woman. <laughs> but here they are, they're picking grain. They're eating it, and the, and the Pharisees are just 
They were ready to point him out. You see, the people of God had turned the work of God into words without power. They'd lost their meaning. Oh, I skipped a part, didn't I? Man, that was a good part, too. <laughs> All right, we got 10 minutes, right? Finishing 10 minutes. Y'all good for that? <laughs> all right, so I'll go ahead and put a plug in for tonight. Uh, I'm not going to get through all this, which will be fine. So I want to invite you back tonight so we can finish this. But in this, in the previous section, we do have the question about fasting. Jesus responds about the bridegroom. But after that, he follows up another story, and he says, you don't sew a piece of new cloth onto an old garment. And you don't put new wine in old wineskins. And it's interesting when I think about that, because I have to be honest, when I first read that, I got really offended with God. Anytime you ever read, does any of y'all do that? You read something, you really get upset with God. Because yeah, I'm thinking and I'm processing through this, I'm like, no, you, if you got an old garment and it gets a tear in it, you throw it away, right? You don't just put a new patch on it. But if you are going to patch a garment, you're going to get a garment that's like it. Because once you've wore your jeans and broke them in and you split the knee, I just wear them with a knee split. But some people put patches on. Because they're comfortable, right? And you broke in a pair of jeans, they're, they're comfortable. Especially if they started out those stiff ones. I don't know, anybody ever buy the old stiff jeans? Yeah, as a kid, that's what we wore. We wore stiff jeans because <laughs> they lasted longer, right? And once you broke those things in, then they started to wear good, and you didn't want to get another stiff pair of jeans. And you wouldn't put a new cloth on an old pair because it'll just rip it out when you go to wash it, right? Because the other one will shrink up, and it'll pull against the threads. And you don't put new, new wine into old wineskins. You know, I started thinking about this. I'm like going... All right, so God, it's the obvious correlation that I'm the wineskin. Now, I've been saved for a while, so that makes me an old wineskin. I've been very offended by this as I'm thinking, processing this. I'm like, God, so that means I'm done? You see, because this is a reference to the law to the old law and the new law that Jesus comes to bring. He is making this parallel for us. That yes, there was these old ways, these old habits in which we would get to God. He says, but I'm bringing a new measure, a new way that brings us to God. One that is explosive inside of you. One that expands inside of you. One that's full of power and authority. One that once it gets inside of you, it can't be contained. And so he correlates this to wine. Now, I don't know if there's any wine officiates in here. Probably not. Probably some in the old life. But uh, we had some Italians that were friends of ours, and they were very well into winemaking. And so you learn a few things when you start hanging out with these people. And, you know, they would make a new batch and put it in a bottle, and that bottle would hopefully hold it, and you put the cork in really tight. 
But in these days, they would put them into wineskins. And so then they would kill an animal. They would immediately take that skin and get it prepared. And they would put the wine in it right away. Because when the skin is flexible and young, it can accept, it can accept that expansion. Because when wine starts to make, there's an expansion process that happens. I won't go into the science of it. It'll bore you. But it expands. And it begins to put pressure against this. And if you put it into an old wineskin, the wineskin will not be able to maintain this pressure. And it'll explode and it'll be wasted. And so if we are to be able to receive this newness of God, then our old wineskins have to be made new. But at some point you take that old wineskin and you pour it out and you drink it, right? But the beauty is, is this is the one who makes us new again. And the thing with wine, when you, make, when you take these grapes and you go to make wine, you know, the funny thing is, is you don't know what you're going to get until you crack it open, right? And so either you're going to have a fine wine or you're going to have vinegar. And isn't it true in the church a lot of times that people who have been around a long time either are fine wine or they're vinegar? Now, you've met some vinegar in the church, haven't you? Because, you know, there's something interesting that happens in that process. It's, it really has to be a very clean process because if it's not a clean process, if there's any contaminant that gets in there, if there's anything that gets in there with the wine in the process, it'll, it'll mess it up and abuse it every time. It'll break. The, you'll end up with vinegar. You'll end up with something you cannot drink. Because the smallest little thing gets in there and you can't drink it. It becomes vinegar. And a lot of times the smallest little thing in our life will, will happen. It could be a hurt. It could be someone that, a relationship that's gone south. Or it could be something that's happened. God maybe didn't answer the way we thought he should answer. Or something happens and we look and we become bitter instead of sweet. You see, there's a work that Jesus wants to do in us, and our old man can't contain that. And for those of you that have been in church a long time, like me, you've had experiences with God for years and years. Some of you way longer than me. And we get poured out. We get emptied. We have to come back to the one who makes us new again. Amen? We have to come back to the one who makes us new so he can put in new wine again. And that's so often why you'll see people who have been in ministry a long time get burned out. Because they've given and they've given and they've poured out and they've poured out and they've emptied themselves. But they haven't been made new. And you're left with a dried up, withered old wineskin. But it isn't amazing. This is the one who makes us new. The one who renews our hearts and our lives. Lance, if you'll come on up.
You see, there's something that has to happen in this gospel that we experience. And worship becomes a great, the gateway into this. And Pastor John's going to be continuing, Lord willing, that, that series for us. Is there maybe something God wants to do in this church? Just celebrated 25 years. That sounds like a wineskin that's been poured out to me. Twenty-five years of ministry. I don't know, eleven, thirteen churches that's been planted in the states and in other countries. Sounds like we've been poured out, doesn't it, church? So why do we look at this man Jesus? And why do we answer the question, who has the power to forgive sins? Because the one who has the power to redeem us, to awaken us, has the power to renew us. The one who can speak to dead bones and say, wake up, can speak to a dried out wineskin and say, come alive. Be made new. I'm not done with you. I've got another work for you. I've got greater things for you. I want to pour in the new wine. That new wine's going to explode in you. I want to give you a new vision, a vision that's going to explode in you, but it can't be contained in your old wineskin. It can't be bottled up in the past you. It can't equate to the last ministry you did. Oh, but we've never done it that way. Exactly. Because this isn't about us. It's about him. It's about what he's doing. It's about what he's pouring out in us. It's about what he has purpose for us. What we need most is someone not just with power over death and disease, demons. We need someone with the power over sin. Someone who has the power to redeem, the power to renew, the power to restore. The greatest news is not that God abandons sinners, but he pursues them with the grace and forgiveness. Why does that matter? Because God is not looking for your strength. He's not looking for your wisdom. He's not looking for your righteousness. He didn't call the righteous, but the weakest. I love this, Pastor John says, if this is the case, then why are we trying to unweak ourselves? Why can't we come to God in our weakness? Why can't we come to God in our frailty? Why can't we come to God as old wineskins? She's not looking for experts, but vessels in which he can pour in his spirit. A willing vessel. An old wineskin that can be made new.